This is going to be part two of the Naveed and Tunadim podcast. So in this uh, episode, I'm going to talk to him a little bit about his experiences living around the world. So let me give you some background on what Tunadim has been up to. Uh, he's worked at a bank called Diamond Trust Bank in Kenya. He's been to East Africa over five times or five times and been living there for over a year. Um, altogether. He's worked at First Micro Finance Bank in Tajikistan. He's helped build the University of Central Asia in Tajikistan. He's run global camps around the world, and he's been to over 50 different countries and visited multiple different slums in those areas. He is extremely experienced in um, developing worlds. He has an incredible perspective. And for this uh, episode, I want to focus more on his experience in Kenya. So right now we're doing the Global TKS Challenge 2020 with Kidogo, which, as you know, is focusing on early childhood development. And so we thought it'd be really valuable for him to share his perspective and his experiences in Kenya, specifically in places like Kibera uh, and early childhood development. So why don't we start there, Nadim? Can you talk to us about your experience in Kibera, in yeah. the slum? Yeah. So, so let me give you some context of like what even brought me to Kenya. I was uh, 18 years old at that time, and... Um, I, I felt that it would be valuable to get some international experience on a resume for a job that I thought I wanted. Uh, and Kenya just naturally uh, came before me through some family friend connections to work at this bank, this, this diamond trust bank, where essentially I was pushing paper. But was, what was exciting was I was in a completely different foreign environment, pushing myself and challenging myself to independently live, but also get exposed to some of the world's biggest problems. And during the days and the weekdays, I was actually at this bank. But on the weekends, I decided to actually get exposed to the, the real side of Kenya I, I wanted to see. So I was able to get to know uh, in the healthcare space what were some of the problems. I was able to get to know some of the education sector spaces. Um, and one weekend, a, a local friend that I made said, hey, do you want to check out Kibera? And, and I'm just like, what's, what's Kibera? Um, and and he, t- he tells me that it's one of the largest slums in all of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and I think that I remember not the, just the, the stats around it was staggering. Um, and I said, hey, yeah, why not? Let's go check it out. So he takes me through this walking tour of uh, Kibera with a, a local friend of his. And I mean, as soon as you enter, and so, so we, we enter through a tuk-tuk, right? This is these, uh, these uh, kind of like three-wheelers that take you in. You don't have any cars in there and just dropped us off at an at a entrance. And as soon as you come in, your, my, my senses were just overwhelmed. Like the, the sights, the sounds, the smells, like I'm just completely overwhelmed by this stench that, that you first encounter when you come in. Uh, but then being able to actually see the completely different context, like just a few meters outside of Kibera, how people are living and working and operating is night and day from what you see in these slums where these small like mud huts or uh, uh, these, these very, very small living quarters are just sandwiched together where there's a huge population density in this small space. But what was, what was also fascinating for me as I walked through Kibera was that there was this this kind of uh, entrepreneurial spirit that you also saw from some people. There was this whole market of people selling these like mandazis, which is like this local like breaded uh, item, and like tools and small little supplies. Um, 
some slum somehow managed to get like a, a satellite radio in there uh, and they were actually uh, trying to broadcast the World Cup game at that time. This is 20, 2010. Um, uh, and they were trying to charge people about five shillings, which was Kenya shillings, which was like less than, than 10 cents at the time. Um, so, so you saw this kind of entrepreneurial spirit in Kibera, but I just took my time kind of getting exposed to areas like sanitation and the lack of basic quality healthcare. Um, and I saw this school and I walked into, this is pre-Kidogo's existence, right? So I walk into this school, which they tell me is an English class. Um, and there's this woman at the front of the class with, with uh, about probably 70 kids. And this is a room that's the size of maybe a king-size mattress. And you get in and these kids are all sitting side by side in this dark environment, probably ranging between ages 10 to 18. No paper, no pencil, no tables. They're sitting on this stool-like environment and the teacher's trying to teach basic grammar. But what blows my mind is that this, this teacher can't even put together a proper sentence to me as I try to talk to her. I'm just wondering, this was, I remember this being a quite a, quite a pivotal moment for me to see this gap of quality education to underprivileged communities that just, just led me to believe how, are, how is this the, the hope that the kids have to really learn English? And that was, that was one of the moments in, in, in my life growing up that really shifted my perspective of, of what connected with me deeply and uh, how bad the problem was of access to quality education in an environment like that. That's awesome. Um, I just want to share some stats with you guys on Kibera itself to get you to kind of visualize this. So there are approximately 2.5 million slum dwellers in about 200 settlements in Nairobi, which represents 60% of the Nairobi population. Think about that. 60% of the Nairobi population. And the land that they occupy is 6%. 2.5 million slum dwellers occupy 6% of the land. That is crazy. So Kibera itself houses about 250,000 of these people, and it's the biggest slum in Africa. What was really mind-blowing to me as well that I visually saw, and then I saw the data around it, was how much, how much of that is young people. So like if, you, if, you look at the, if you break down that data to actually see the uh, age breakdown of the people that are the slum dwellers, that, that's, that's fascinating to me too, to think about how many of the people are actually young people that actually choose sometimes to stay in Kibera as opposed to actually renting places outside of it. They get used to this quality of life sometimes when their upbringing is in that environment and they stay in a Kibera slum. So it, it's mind-boggling to think about how many of those people are actually a young community as well. And I'm going to shock you here with a stat because when we talk about people who choose to stay in Kibera, it's usually not the women. The women are usually forced to be in Kibera. Let me give you a stat on abortion. Um, at any given time, there are about 50% of girls that are pregnant between the ages of 16 and 25 years old. Do you hear that? 50% of girls 16 to 25 years old are pregnant at any given time. And so there is a lot of abortion that happens in Kibera and it's extremely dangerous because it's not like there are hospitals anywhere. In fact, in Kibera, there are no government clinics or hospitals. And most people that provide aid are charitable organizations. And so that is very, very scary. 
some other things uh, for you guys to, to know is that the government owns all the land in Kibera. And so the people that live there don't even own the land. They just don't have any rights. The average house size is like 12 feet by 12 feet, and it's build, built with mud walls. Mud. 12 feet by 12 feet. So imagine when it rains, everything gets wet, it all gets destroyed. The cost to live there, because they have to pay rent, is about six euros a month. Let's just round it to around $10 a month to live there. And each shack can house up to eight or more people with most of them sleeping on the floor. That's really, that's really, really interesting. The electricity side, you know, energy is a big, has a big correlation to quality of life. Only 20% of Kibera has electricity, 20%. And for water, until recently, Kibera had no water. So recently they had to go to, um, they had to go to the Nairobi Dam to collect water. And that was uh, not only a long ways away, but also the dam wasn't clean. And so the water from that dam caused a lot of typho- typhoid and cholera. Now there are two main water pipes that flow into Kibera. Um, and the residents have to pay three Kenyan shillings for 20 liters, which is cheap to us, but not to them, especially when they're used to water being free. That was also something that I noticed in Bangladesh. Um, people didn't want to pay for water because the culture there was water is a natural thing, therefore it should be free. So they would rather uh, get waters from digging holes and wells, but then they would get arsenic poisoning. And so this was like really, really surprising to us that people don't even want to pay for water, even if it's not that much money because they just expect it to be a free thing. There's also so much drugs that happen there. There's a huge problem with glue sniffing if you imagine living in a slum, like what do you think you do all the time? Most of the time you don't go to school. So you re- you result to like drinking and alcohol and drugs and alcohol there is extremely cheap. You have this alcohol that's made up of like 60% ethanol and it's, it's very, very cheap. It's called changa. And so they make this themselves and they, these young kids get drunk off alcohol and then it leads to violence and crime, rape and all of those things. And and I just want to comment because I actually firsthand saw some of this stuff. I saw people making this bootlegged uh, versions of of, of Ishanga, but also like you see men that were just kind of passed out sometimes. Like it's it's a state where... Uh, uh, an environment where people are like, look, there's no point of thinking long-term. I'm just going to think short-term. And any money that's made through a, a small business or whatever ethical or unethical means is spent on just trying to forget about what's going on. And that's in some ways where the culture of what what you trust men to do and women to do in a Kibera environment is, is very different. Um, and I just remember firsthand seeing how much of a problem uh, drug use and alcohol abuse was because, again, these are people t- that live hand-to-mouth, right? I think it's so hard to put yourself in that perspective unless you yourself ex- have experienced living uh, uh, under the poverty line and being able to actually live in, in a situation where you don't know if you're going to have enough food to survive for the next few days. You might actually experience hunger. So I, I saw this when I was about 18, 19, and uh, it, 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 it got under my skin in some ways. It became a problem that frustrated me enough to play a role in education. And fast forward maybe um, about eight years after when uh, Abzal and Sabrina, who are also good friends of mine, kind of were telling me about Kibera, and I... I 
I, I, I could all go yes. And I, and I, I was able to actually um, see uh, what their vision was. And, and I was there in the earlier days of when they first had their first center, which was, which was incredibly exciting for me. So, I mean, I've also been to Kenya as well. And it's, it's fascinating when you actually talk to the people and understand them. So remember all those stats I told you about drugs, alcohol, rape, you know, and then on top of that, not having food, not having any sanitation, like there's no toilets in Kidogo for the most part. There's like holes that a bunch of people share. So it's so easy for people to get sick. But here's the crazy thing. As humans, we've evolved to be so adaptable. And the power of mindset is extremely underrated. What happens is these kids start adopting this complacency attitude where they become okay with their situation. Not all of them, but so many of them, the majority. And they just get stuck in this cycle of poverty. They think, oh, this is my life. That's my dad, if they even have a dad. This is what my friends do. I guess this is what life's going to be like. The most ambitious people have dreams of becoming like a high school teacher. That is the ambition of the most ambitious. And a lot of it is they just don't know. They don't know what they're capable of doing. They don't know what the world is like outside of their bubble in the slum. And they're stuck in the cycle of poverty. And what you guys are working on with Kidogo and the early childhood development stuff is a game changer. It helps people and their families understand that there is more and there can be more and they're capable of doing more. And really what we're trying to do is not necessarily just you know, help them be healthy and, and help them learn things. Like That's definitely a part of it. But really the ultimate goal is how do we break the cycle of poverty? And that is one of the most dangerous things that is happening, the cycle of poverty. People getting born into poverty and assuming that is the state they should live in. Now, this is very different than people in the developed world like Canada and the United States. In many, many cases, the homeless people in these areas are either uh, mentally, um, they have mental illness or they have an addiction, a strong addiction to something. So those, are, those represent the majority of homeless people in the developed world. Whereas in the developing world, they are just normal biological people that are in a really shitty situation. And that is powerful because what that tells us is if we can give them the access to the quality of education that we have and the same type of resources that we have here, they can do incredible things like cure cancer. They can help build rockets to Mars. They can you know, cure diseases. They can invent new things. They're not, um, they're not any different than us in terms of their biological capabilities but it's their situation that puts them at this extreme, extreme disadvantage. I, I think for me, a big piece of uh, my first exposure to Kidogo was like, if you can start young and actually shift them in that perspective uh, of, of what's possible, um, 
you can change completely the trajectory of where their lives go. So I totally bought into the vision of like, we need to start young and we need to find a model that actually can be able to uh, get people to it to be affordable using local supplies and invest in um, not just not just the education, but nutrition and other uh, other values. So immediately when I first saw the vision of Kirogo, when I was able to actually go to the pilot center before the students even start, started, I saw that this was a sure way to get these families and these kids out of this vicious cycle of poverty. But to do it in a scalable way, in a profitable way, that's, I think, the real challenge and one is ones in which they've been grappling with um, over the last few years and, and expansion, I think, whether it's through making the mamapreneurs at their, at their spoke centers uh, have uh, uh, more opportunities or actually thinking about geographic expansion to other locations. I think that this is something that you have to truly understand the the context in which you're operating in. A, a Kibera slums uh, Kidogo center is very different than a slum in neighboring cities and neighboring uh, countries and understanding the tribe tribes that even operate in the this context is is so crucial because you have such a tribal culture actually in a place like Kenya where many of the population actually votes just based on which tribes tribes they belong in. So there could be a Kikuyu tribe, there could be a, 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 a Lua tribe or something along those lines. And, and you have to basically understand how are people actually operating in that center and what motivates that mamapreneur or that mother or father that's choosing to send their kid to the school. So jumping to conclusions and, and thinking, okay, I have a, a technological solution and they can work on their dumb phones because obviously none of them have smartphones. Or I think that all, obviously we just need to come up with another income source for the mamapreneur. Like it has to meet the requirement of, of, of cash to hand so that they could feed their family and understanding the context of the beneficiary, the mother or the kid or the parents or the mamapreneur is so, so critical. And I, I just want to highlight, it's taken me years and years of working in developing countries, the, the 40 plus, 50 plus countries I've been able to travel to and actually see the context of the developing countries to understand how can you, how can you come up with solutions that actually are engaging the local stakeholder? How can you actually understand where they're coming from? And if you have not spoken to someone from Kenya, then you are, in my view, you're operating your solutions in a box and getting someone, getting connected to someone that actually lives or has spent some time, quality time in Kenya, ideally in the education space, ideally in ECD, ideally having visited Kibera, I think is such a critical piece as you think through the understanding the problem and coming up with a solution. So I just wanted to share that thought as well. That's awesome. You know, ultimately, we want to share our perspectives and our knowledge with you guys because your goal is to make an impact, you know, now and in the future. One of the things that is really frustrating is this concept of volunteerism, where a lot of people in the Western world, like in our privileged world, go to developing countries and maybe build a house or, you know, just do cute things and they think they made an impact, but really they didn't. And that was my experience. Uh, you know, one time I went to Nairobi and I was working with a school where a lot of Kibera kids were. And the people I was working with were like helping to build a playground. And they built like this wishing wall where they like painted a wall and they're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was just like, this is dumb. This is not making a really tangible impact. It's not sustainable. This is not sustainable development because they were building the playground. They were making the wall. But when they leave, what happens? And so what ultimately you want to do is you want to think about how can I make sustainable change? 
how can I help empower the people there to be part of the solution? Not just us going in, thinking we know it all, doing some stuff and leaving to our comfortable homes. Your mindset has to be, what is their perspective? How can I empower them to take control of their lives and increase the quality of life, their life and the people around them? So hopefully this podcast was uh, insightful for you guys. Hopefully uh, you got a better picture of some experiences, you know, Nadim and I had in, in Nairobi. Um, and, you know, we're happy to do more of these types of things with other experiences we've had around, around the world, like Bangladesh and India, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and different, different countries. Um, but for now, thanks for listening. Hope that was helpful. Thank you. If you have any questions, the answers are all there on the internet. You can watch some YouTube videos. You can get in touch with people from there. The, the world's your oyster. So take advantage of a lot of these people that have done some meaningful work in the context you're trying to understand problems.